After a firefight, they killed Welcome to Forecast Roundtable, Forecast International's podcast on worldwide defense and aerospace markets. This is Matthew Beers with Forecast International. I'm here with Dan Darling, International Military Markets Analyst who covers Europe for us. Today we'll be discussing the European defense environment. Now, is um, uh, these different priorities, you know, Western Europe versus Eastern Europe, um, how does that affect their ability to cooperate with each other um, in terms of, of meeting those threats? Well, it, it, it's a little lopsided in terms right. of capabilities, but right. they're trying to conduct more pooling arrangements, pooling of assets. You see right. it with uh, the NATO strategic airlift um, right. concept, which involves uh, three C-17s based in Hungary, and right. now there's uh, aerial refueling initiative being overseen by OCAR, okay. uh, where A330s will be based in Eindhoven, Netherlands. So there is an, a pooling of capabilities. We need to cooperate and share more and more. Gradually, a chipping away at that pride and sovereignty right. element. That's not to say that it's out the door, far from right. it. But there is there are attempts on micro levels of doing it that right. are now growing to larger levels. Um, In terms of, it sounds like they're logistics. Like there's logistics. There's, I, I would use Benelux as an example. Right. Um, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg trying right. to, to pool naval assets, uh, joint paratroop training, right. et cetera, et cetera. The, on a... I call them nodes right. on those micro levels, whether it's Nordic defense co cooperation, Baltic cooperation, right. or, you know, a Dutch-German uh, core, right. experimental core or standing core. Right. Um, sometimes these, these have been in, in place for over a decade. Right. Uh, they're all good steps mm -hmm. for Europe. Uh, Is it a, a good enough step? I mean, if we have another... Uh, aggressive action by Russia uh, in a Euro Eastern European country. Will the Western European countries be able to assist them, or do they have the strategic mindset? Do they? I have think that's a question of political willpower versus capability, right. and that's, right. <laughs> that's a much trickier question. <laughs> I, we haven't seen much political willpower right. in Europe. That is for sure. I think okay. the 2008 five-day conflict in Georgia was a classic example of that, right. where it became blame Shakashvili and, you know, the Georgian government for Russia fomenting separate separatist sentiments in South right. Ossetia and Abkhazia. This isn't to clear complete blame from the Georgian government, but right. Europe was quick to condemn the right. the micro state against the the Russian bear right. and the end result was there's still Russian troops on right. what is de jure Georgian territory right so thus there's a once again a retention of a frozen conflict right. where Russia by having a destabilizing element right. generally 
in the form of troops, ostensibly peacekeepers, right. is able to keep that conflict from being resolved and, and therefore have a hand in it, and right. you're in NATO and or the EU isn't able to creep closer to its borders. Right. Because that, in the Russian mindset, is the number one worry, right. respectfully looking at it from Moscow's vantage. Right, of course. So. Um, and in terms of that, um, and in terms of these countries working together, um, is there any progress towards a EU army? Ah, uh, yes, the EU army, the dream. <laughs> right. It never goes away. Right. It's Europe is has talked about more defense cooperation, having a coherent, common security defense policy, dating back to uh, uh, basically at least 1992. Right. And they've had various declarations and meetings and steps. Uh, Maastricht, Amsterdam, Nice, um, St. Malo uh, Declaration of 1998 was considered a major step because the British and the French, um, Jacques Chirac, French President Jacques Chirac and British Prime Minister Tony Blair sat down and basically said, we will um, cooperate and move Europe forward. The two of us, militarily or in a peacekeeping role, where NATO won't go. Right. We need to have an independent European arm to right. act where the United States, NATO, won't go. Plus, it removes the United States from directing right. European policy, as seen from Brussels' vantage point. Right. And so the European de- uh, Defense Agency was put in place to right. launch to coordinate R&D and common procurement policies and to uh, minimize um, duplication of resources, et cetera, that still occurs. I'm I'm sure. I mean, that's a big waste right there. Because industrial sovereignty is still an issue in Europe. But there has been, without a doubt, progress. And it's very difficult to synchronize all these procurement programs. Right. You know, everybody's already on a different timeline based right. on having bought fighters here or tanks right. there. But the EU army, I would say with Britain exiting the EU, that's a that it was problem. always a big obstacle because right. the British wanted no part of a European defense okay. element. They saw it as duplicating unnecessarily NATO's position. Okay, so that's not a problem. That's actually a good thing in terms of an EU army being a Right, but you still have limited resources and capacity. So where does the EU army come into play? Does it act merely when NATO won't act? Does it overtake NATO as Europe's primary security pillar? Um, what do they do with that? Do they have to get a, a vote within the, the individual member states first, and then they move on to actually building? Well, right now, um, there's yeah, there's been no right. <laughs> real... Each time a rotating presidency occurs, it happens every year. Right. Each, each country government of that country that takes over the right. rotating EU president says, you know, we want to move a European defense right. pillar forward. And while small elements are 
little things are are undertaken there's definitely been no eu army it's it's right. it's kind of a a nebulous concept it right. just exists on paper um right. I, I don't even know if there's been any progress on the eu defense headquarters being set up and what right. comes of that and how much work is done there do they right. work with nato headquarters etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean logistically that that's an immense move it is, and, and overlapping bureaucracies. Right. It, the EU is great at setting up, right. <laughs> uh, you know, agencies and yeah. bureaucracies, and but concrete progress is something different. Right. What the European Union has done and had it, had them in place for a while is create um, battle groups, right, and those are. About three thousand strong multinational um, rapid reaction right. groupings that say you know Baltic countries plus Finland and Ireland or Europe, uh, I'm England, uh, Britain, France, Netherlands, and Belgium combine on one, right. and and those are meant to be activated right. um, quickly and sustain operations for right. i believe i forget the exact parameters but i believe it's 60 days so kind of like the united states has yeah um again with europe the the trick is always sustainability in the field particularly right. on a on a larger scale than going in firing a couple bullets at, at somali rebels right. and then staying there and right. being peacekeepers right. for you know, 90 days or however long it is, sometimes right. years in, in some instances. Yeah. But while that's all fine and good, if you find yourself in Afghanistan or or Iraq, using right. another example, it's very difficult for these countries to, right. on a significant level, sustain troops in the field, right. not just because they have limited numbers of troops, but in many instances, the cost of these operations falls on the defense budget. Right. They're rare. Some countries have supplementals, and some countries don't. Germany right. is one where the operations fall on the defense budget. Right. And as we know, military operations uh, abroad are expensive. Right. So rolling back to the EU army right. element, it, it's something that bureaucrats and statesmen and political officials are constantly going to bring up. And I feel like we're neither closer. Right. I mean, we're just nowhere closer than we were before. Right. But I mean, that, strategically, economically, that it makes sense. It makes Certainly. Sense, yeah. It makes sense when you have ever-shrinking capacity and the cost of, of – Com modern combat aircraft right. and a aerial refueler and newer radars, right. better artillery, and and now you're seeing a return to heavy armor after right. years of getting right. rid of it. The Dutch yeah. got rid of their entire tank fleet. Right. I think they have some twenty or so mothballed. <laughs> but now suddenly, you know, this is what happens constantly. Right. People think they figured out the the security environment following the last conflict and no one ever does it, right. it, it russia's not a threat anymore we don't need those tanks right and, yeah. and you know <laughs> so it, it's definitely a, 
there's going to be the need for sustainability in the field, a little more capacity. I don't think Europe is any different than the United States in in a certain way of thinking firepower can overcome overcome numbers. If we have higher technology, greater technology, and better kit, so to speak, this will overcome our lack of capacity. But, you know, two jet fighters can't be in the same place at once, just like one, you know, battleship can't be. Frigate, carrier, Corvette, anything can't be in the same place at once or can't be in two places at once. So uh, what was it? Stalin who said uh, mass has... Capacity has a, is a number all to itself. It, I forget exactly right. that quote. I'm yeah. bastardizing it right now. I, I was but, about to say uh, a a separated uh, European military group, uh, even under the, these groups that you're talking about, three thousand mm-hmm. you know soldiers. If they were to defend themselves against Russia, um, I, I think it would be extremely difficult logistically. I think it would be extremely difficult strategically and economically it, to actually. It be would be successful at that. I think the game the Russians are playing is less military mess than right. winning without firing a shot. Right. The worry in the Baltic countries is their sizable ethnic Russian populations in within their borders. And right. That's under, under Russia's compatriots policy, which yeah. I believe they announced right after invading Georgia in two thousand eight. Right. That is seen as a Russian citizen. And there's a lot of doors open. So whether it's the the Kremlin funding Russian language TV within an Estonia or a Latvia or right. some other form of fifth column mm-hmm. in Lithuania or the Latvian, Estonian, Lithuanian governments doing a lousy job of of trying to make ethnic Russians within their borders feel as if they're citizens. Right. I mean, there's a lot of different ways of slicing that. It, it is an issue in terms of is there a fifth element? Is there a right. way of winning a war without firing a shot? Right. What's the asymmetrical method for or without technically destate- firing a shot? Right. right. Yeah. Um, if then you move troops onto soil, it's a fait accompli. Right. Without without having to um, enter in true outbreak of conflict, right? But I I it's very unpredictable. I, everybody, no one saw Crimea com- uh, approaching. I did. Uh, <laughs> well, I put it to you like this: if you look at um, Newspaper reports, never the best thing to go on. (laughs) But um, newspaper reports about a week or two before Crimea were all saying, oh, there's no threat from Russia, none whatsoever. Oops, surprise. So, um, you know, Vladimir Putin has shown that he's not unwilling to take risks. So is he willing to undertake a, a shooting war with potentially United States, Britain, and France over... A slice of Estonia? I right. don't know. I mean, yeah. it's it's a. If you're in Estonia, you can't afford to test that. Uh, yeah, they don't hypothetical. want to be the test <laughs> So, yeah, and therefore, they're looking to embed themselves with 
the powers in Western Europe, the Germanys, the the Frances, right. the Great Britons, and, mm-hmm. and without a question, the United States. Yeah. They're also trying, the Baltic countries are trying to work cl- more closely with the Nordic nations, um, Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark, because they all share the same concerns over Russia. Right. Well, those countries are, are hesitant to declare Russia... Uh, potential rival or foe right. uh, for diplomatic reasons, right. they nonetheless in security planning offices are focusing on Russia as the principal threat. Right. You can talk climate change and humanitarian crisis till you're blue in the face, and those are without a doubt transnational concerns, but right. in terms of conventional hard military power, it, for those countries, it's right. Russia first and foremost. For sure, and that's again not making a, a statement that Russia is going to invade any of them anytime right. soon. I just don't see it. But right. it, it is logical that Russia would test reaction times in other countries. I, the United States does it with other countries as well. Right. So yeah. that's just the way of the world and geopolitics right. for sure so well that was uh dan darling i'm matthew beers uh thank you for joining us at forecast roundtable we'll see you next time thank you for joining us at forecast roundtable for more information on international aerospace and defense markets visit www.forecastinternational.com.